Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net. Little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your host Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor and all over this wet world at WERU.org. I'm Alan Sprague, the only uh, rusty anchor here today. Mike Joyce is off on a delivery somewhere between Portland and Chesapeake. Um, hope he's having as good weather there as we've been having here. But anyway, uh, we're going to uh, talk with Richard and Lorraine Stanley today, who are here in the studio. Welcome, folks. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. Good, good morning. morning. And uh, we're going to be talking by phone with a... Uh, a fellow who is uh, concerned with the fisheries in the Atlantic here a little bit. But first, I'm uh, going to tell you about a few uh, things that I've come across the, in the uh, media, more or less. Um, one is uh, boat building. Richard Stanley here is a uh, second generation or second generation, second generation yeah. wooden boat builder. Wooden boat builder. Yeah, this, uh, this is the other end of the spectrum here. Britain's Navy is going to start making a uh, a fleet of unmanned surface and underwater vessels that are printed on a 3D printer up to 50 feet long on a 50 uh, on a 3D printer it's a uh, that's really stretching the limits of boat building as far as I'm concerned but if you're interested in more information uh, go to gcaptain.com gcaptain is a great source for uh, for boating information uh, they say that three-dimensional printing of crafts up to 50 feet will uh, it would be layers of metal and plastic powder, and it'll permit cheaper and quicker production. <laughs> I can't imagine having to be in a room that's printing a uh, a, a boat. You, the the printing um, matrix or the whatever the stuff that the printer shoots out there has to harden quickly so it must have really a noxious chemicals to uh, to evaporate that fast but fortunately uh, this uh, email I have didn't include any any fragrances with it so that's uh, one thing that's come across the boat talk desk 
Uh, fishing season looks to be fairly good this year. The, they've announced already that the scallop season is going to remain the same as last year, which is fairly short, only 70 days. And as far as I know, the shrimp season is still um, undecided with the chance that they may open it up for a very, very short season, which for a lot of people probably won't make it worth gearing up. But we'll find out about that. And... Uh, the New England Fisheries Management Council, the people who are uh, uh, assigned with making the uh, the catch shares and the, the limits on f- fishing to try to prevent overfishing, had a meeting in April that was uh, fairly dramatic. There was a, a group from uh, the group called themselves the Atlantic Marine Alliance showed up there. They're representing uh, some... Uh, People who have done studies with the fishermen and uh, are trying to raise their concerns about the fleet consolidation, and the 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 meeting turned fairly ugly. I guess that's what it is. We'll be talking with the fellow who was leading the Atlantic Marine Alliance, uh, Brett Tolley, in about 15 minutes. But first, we want to get around to um, what I think uh, I'm going to award the. Uh, the Toolbox of the Year Award, too. There's probably a lot of people, I know there's a lot of people listening to Boat Talk now who uh, have toolboxes of various sorts, not necessarily boat carpenters, could be house carpenters, could be electricians, plumbers, who knows what, people who have a, a toolbox as part of their occupation. Well, Toolbox of the Year Award is going to go to um, uh, a company in, uh, a Dutch company named Amsel, A-M-E-L-S, they have what they call the support vessel, the Damon support vessel for yacht support. Now, if you happen to have a great big yacht, oh, probably 150 feet, 250 feet. Uh, Richard, you've probably been on some of these big yachts, too, you know, the ones with marble floors and all that, uh, these yachts that you wouldn't want to be offshore with, but... uh, the big yachts, they are made in, for entertainment. The owners of the, have, the yachts has them so they can have guests aboard and, and, and show them a good time. And, of course, showing them a good time requires uh, lots of little toys, you know, like a submarine, jet skis, probably a helicopter. Uh, and where are you going to store all these vessels, all these toys on your yacht? So now they're making a... A yacht support vessel. Amel's company is. It has a helicopter deck that opens up, and the helicopter can withdraw down into a hangar, so be protected, so you can take it offshore over to your next destination where the where the yacht is headed. And it has storage for a a, a submarine, jet skis, uh, two or three outboards, and inflatables. And it has an entire uh, mechanics service area, so you can, uh, if anything goes wrong with any of your toys, it gets serviced right there on it in the toolbox. This is the toolbox of the year now. But Richard, if when you go on these big yachts, uh, you've been on. I, I've been on them too. Um, the the owner is never around when when we're allowed on board. You know, being the, the working class, but the the crew will take you around and give you a little tour, and I'm always amazed at the kitchens that they have in these yachts. You know, they're really 
high-end all stainless steel the the refrigerator is usually a, a big double door refrigerator with uh, uh brie and caviar inside and all this stuff too well on this yacht service vessel this uh, toolbox of the year you know what's going to be in the refrigerator in that one beer and pizza <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i mean well it's a toolbox it's got to have the right equipment in there so and it's going to be all the storage. It probably do a lot of the prep cooking and uh, food storage on this vessel too, so that your yacht is uh, unencumbered by uh, uh, functionality. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. there we go. The f- sixty-nine meter, which uh, figures out to I think about a uh, hundred and fifty feet or so, uh, toolbox of the year from Amel's company. That's so. Uh, you gonna think uh, think about building any of those, Richard? Well, I don't probably. I don't see that <laughs> in my future. I don't think so. <laughs> no. no, but I I do understand the the want and the need for that kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, yeah they've already yeah. sold one, and I'm sure they're going to probably go like hotcakes. I would think so. <laughs> it's a good idea, really. Yeah. Somebody is uh, thinking about how to make money for their company. I'm, they hit on a good one there. So, Richard, you are, as we said, uh, a boat builder, son of Ralph, and uh, born into the business. I mean, you probably uh, stepped on several nails before you were old enough to wear shoes. <laughs> I, I put several nails on my feet, but that's for sure. Uh, we, my father stored boats out behind the house I grew up in, and, and there was always nails and woods out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was out scrubbing boat bottoms when I was three years old, and, mm-hmm. and it's I, my father was out scrubbing the bottom of a boat, and I went up to the house and asked my mother some boots and some a bucket and a broom, and because we used to just use a bucket and a broom to scrub the bottoms back then, mm-hmm. uh, pressure washers, yeah. and uh, I was out. I, I my mother got me set up, and I went out and and uh, was out there scrubbing the bottom. My father looked down, saw me there scrubbing the bottom with him. <laughs> yeah. 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 Did he pay you? No, no, no. I <laughs> Typical father. No. I didn't get paid. Yeah. Not too much later. Yeah. yeah. So you you probably picked it up before you were picking up some uh, boat building skills before you were even in high school. Oh, much. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Was there ever any doubt in your mind that you were going to be a, a wooden boat builder? That's all I ever wanted to be was yeah. a wooden boat builder. Yeah. 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 yeah that's great. Uh, one thing that I know a lot of wooden boat builders have a problem now is supply of good wood. Well, I I ride around the state of Maine and I see a lot of good trees standing. A lot of good trees. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good cedar trees down east and there's a lot of good oak trees in, in the state of Maine. So do you and, approach owners and, and harvest yourself? And uh so I, I go to local mills and there's a mill over here in Bucksport I, I go to and, and there's a mill on the island a, a local guy has and and uh I I most often can find what I need Ah, through local sources. Mm -hmm. Um, The trouble is that most of the the yards that used to, most of the mills that used to saw are are not in business anymore. They they went out of business and or died off, and and no one took it over. And that that I see is the biggest problem. Is that that there's Guys that with mills don't really understand what what boat lumber needs to be. That they're used to sawing straight lumber, and boat right. lumber needs to have curves and right. stuff in it. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. So, 
Um, let's let's start with your father. He uh, you, can you give a little history of Ralph Stanley? Well, my father is a self-taught boat builder. He uh, went around to boat yards when he was younger, as I did, on and, Mount Desert uh, Island. On Mount Desert Island, yeah, and. Uh, he uh, watched him and, and learned from it and read a lot of books on it. And and he wanted to build him his own lobster boat so he could go lobster fishing. And uh, so he he, he got uh, some wood together and, and built a boat. It took him two years to get it completed. And uh, he, when he got done with that, he, he when he got it completed, he... he he thought that he'd never want to do that again, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, which I've never thought that myself. But but uh, he uh, next next winter, a fellow, a, a local lobster fisherman, came to him and asked him if he'd build him a boat. And my father couldn't couldn't wait to get started on it. He was all excited and, and been doing it ever since. And in the summertime, my father sailed on a schooner that he stored and maintained as an Alden, I think it was 43-foot Alden Centerwood schooner. And he sailed that for summer people in Northeast Harbor for, I don't know, 18 or 19 summers. This is Dictator? No, no, it's a Niliagra. Oh. Huh. She she ended up on the banks of the river up in Brewer, mm. the Scott River in Brewer, and, and a fellow bought it, and he was going to rebuild it, and he... Uh, didn't ever rebuild it. He's sitting in the mud. It, it, it's not it, good. It, it, no, it was up on land oh, okay. alongside the river, but it it just it just went to pieces, and they ended up sawing it up and hmm. doing away with it. But uh, yeah, that's the story of a, a, a lot of a lot of boats, wood or otherwise. I'm afraid. Yeah. True. Yeah. So then you uh, were following. You and your father were working together for for many years. Yeah, I, I worked as a as a youth with my father in, in this business there building boats. So I I had hands on most of the boats that we he built there since I was. You became known for young. friendship sloops. He, we we did. My father rebuilt and built several friendship sloops. The first one he built in 1962, the year I was born. Huh. And so he didn't help much for that. No, one. I didn't help much for that one. But I've done a lot to it since then. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, we had her in the shop last winter and replanted the top sides and, and reframed the sister framed the top sides. Um, she had an electrolysis problem. She had a DC current going through her top sides and and it uh, turned the wood to powder around everything above waterline. That's an odd one, isn't it? It was odd. Yeah. yeah. I'd never really seen it before like that. And, and who, it found, just, who discovered what that problem was? Well, the the boat went down to the westward of Southwest Harbor for the summer to one of the sons of the owner was having his house rebuilt and he lived on the boat at this marina and they switched it from side to side and the boat came back with this problem and we thought probably it was a stray current from the marina that caused it and but thinking back over it it it, uh, was probably shouldn't have thought that way about it because usually stray current affects the bottom of the boat. Right. And nothing was affected in the bottom of the boat. It was just like brand new. Hmm. But everything above water, in the middle part of her, and it got back, you know, the wood 
didn't deteriorate out towards the ends. Mm-hmm. It's just in the middle part where it's sitting against the marina. Yeah, and okay. was it, it, it near the chain plates or anything? In, in around the chain plates yeah. as well, which you had stainless steel chain plates yeah. and bronze fastenings, mm-hmm. and the, the the fasteners were a little more brittle than than they should have been when we took them out. But they they, were, they really looked like new, basically. But uh, the the wood, though, the cedar and and the oak had. Powdered, huh? Just powdered. All the minerals were, were were like taken out of the wood, and it was just like fiber left. Huh. And you could pull the the, the powder. The, the screws were, around the screws was all powder, but the frames themselves were, was like a straw broom. You could pick out strands of the wood Boy. right all the way through the timbers. You know, there really there really really wasn't much holding it together. Yeah, there. I'm thinking. Yeah, wouldn't yeah. want to go offshore too much. No. <laughs> But we we refreshed, we we sister framed from the top sides there and replanted the top sides and and we had well anyway back when the, we when we first noticed the problem they we took the planks off and, and replaced them where the problems were and the timbers back then weren't so bad they were still solid and but we did sister frame a few. Timbers in there at that time and, and replanted her. And then the next year, she stayed in Southwest Harbor where she normally does on a mooring. And the problem reoccurred and it, it went further on. Hmm. And, and it reoccurred in the new planks. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, something happening that fast, you know it's not right. Yeah, it? it's not right, you know. And, and so we didn't have any idea what was going on exactly and I wasn't involved with it at the time and I was building boats, the new boats at the time and, and wasn't involved with the storage boats but then they they didn't do anything about it other than they just patched it up and, and made it look good again and and they, it just came, every year it came back mm-hmm. with that same problem going on and getting worse and so they finally asked me about it and, and got me involved and I says, well, it's got the 1962 original wiring that was put in with staples. Uh. And uh, I says, there's got to be a DC current going through the top sides of the boat and leaving the boat at the water at the least resistance Mm -hmm. because everything below water is fine. So I called the electricians in, and they rewired her. And the uh, lady that... uh, Rewired it, took the wire and out, found staples. Esther. Yeah, Esther Jacobs. Yeah. 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 And uh, she uh, found that uh, wires had, had staples yeah. put through them. Yeah. And uh, so that we figured that must be what was going on. And, and so we rewired it. And the problem didn't get any worse, but we didn't have the time to fix it properly at the time. And, and so this past winter, we brought it in my shop and we we probably fixed yeah. her. So, now, for uh, a lot of people listening um, are not that familiar with boat building, so I guess we need to ex- explain what a, a sister frame is. It's basically just a, the same frame right, with a new one right next to the old it, one. It's We left the old frames that were in there in, and we just put a, a shorter frame. It didn't go all the way down into the keel like the, the original frames because mm-hmm. everything below I was fine. Yeah, so we yeah. made it go down and overlap into the bottom of the boat. 
and it's, it's a frame that just goes alongside the original frame. Yeah, you steam yeah. them though. We steam bent them. Yeah. yeah. So even even handling a shorter one inside of a boat after it's already built is probably a little bit of a hassle. It's right? a it's quite a job. We we you have to do it from the, all the outside of the boat because. All the ceiling stock and all the interior is inside the boat, and mm-hmm. we didn't take any of that out. Oh, okay. So we had to bend. We we had to take in, and pre-bend the timber in a vise. Oh. And and, and then and then and then shove it down in down and through then, the deck. And then we had to put a, a screw a block into it, and then push it in. We had, we still had the top streaks on, so we had shear planks, and we we so we had to push the top of the frame in by the the uh, shear plank and then drive oh, it yeah, up yeah in up underneath under the it, shear yeah. plank yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and there was you know all the ceiling in there so there's no way to clamp anything yeah yeah so probably a few uh, four-letter words flying around it sometimes <laughs> there too <laughs> but no you, get, you got the job done and then that, that's what it counts yeah, it worked out very yeah. well so uh, we're going to change gears here a little bit. Uh, earlier, I was talking about the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service and the and the Atlantic. Um, forget the name, but anyway, uh, Brent Tolley, representing the, some of the fishermen, is on the phone right now. So we'll go to Brett. Good morning, Brett. Hi. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Um, let's start right from the very beginning and then tell uh the name of the well your organization about it and why it was formed and uh, what you would like to do sure sure yeah thanks um so i work i'm a community organizer with the northwest atlantic marine alliance nama is the acronym we're based in gloucester massachusetts we've been around for 20 years as a small nonprofit. We work with community-based fishermen up and down the coast working to transform policies and seafood markets to better support the health of the ocean, the marine ecosystem, and uh, independent community-based fishermen. Okay. So we, we, we initially started in Maine, actually. We, um, our headquarters was initially in Saco for about the first 10 years. So we... Uh, we worked quite a bit. A lot of uh, Maine fishermen were some of our founders of the organization. And initially we, we started because uh, essentially management of the fisheries wasn't working. Um, fishermen were not being engaged in the process. Uh, the fish stocks were not doing so well. And, uh, and so our organization came as, as a way to bring fishermen and managers and scientists together through a kind of co-management model to better uh, inform the science that manages our fisheries and, and do a better job so that ultimately we're bringing more value both to the public, to our local economies, and to the marine ecosystem. That's kind of the heart of, of the work. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your organization is a, a kind of a, a bottom-up grassroots organization that was founded by... Uh, concerned people, as opposed to the National Marine Fisheries Service, which was a uh, an a, a point appointed uh, service. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. So um, last April there was a I said earlier a, a dramatic meeting at the National Marine Fisheries Service. Um, they allow a, a comment period, a, a limited comment period, and you came prepared to make comments and. Why don't you tell us about um, 
what happened there? Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of context. I'll try not to go into the weeds too much, but let me know if, if I can go into more detail. So essentially what we're talking about is the New England ground fish fishery. So the ground fish are about 13 different species of fish that swim along the bottom of the ocean, and that includes species like cod, haddock, flounder, pollock, a lot of key species that have had an incredible amount of historical and economic and and social importance to the New England region and Maine especially as well. So we're talking about the ground fish. So in the attempt to manage the ground fish so that the stocks are healthy, um, there's been a you know several different management approaches over the years. In 2010, we started what is a dramatically different approach to manage these fish, and the approach is called catch shares. The you know the, the short and sweet of it is that catch shares are designed to consolidate the fleet into just a few boats. It's also designed to privatize fisheries access so that it's no longer in the hands of the public and managed by the public, but rather in the hands of uh, independent corporations and managed similar to a private property. The belief is that if the fish access is turned into a private property, it'll be better managed. Um, but we reject that. There's, there's a lot of examples in other aspects of our economy where uh, privatizing the resource uh, whether it be through our banking system, our healthcare system, or the agriculture system, there's no uh, evidence that you know turning something to a private property will mean that we'll take care, we'll better take care of that resource, we'll take care of the environment. So, so that the transition started in 2010, and very quickly we started seeing the symptoms of uh, a consolidating fleet around New England. We saw working waterfronts shutting down. We saw access, moving away from the independent owner-operator fishermen, and we saw an intense fishing pressure of just a few boats on inshore areas that were leaving some of these areas without any fish, uh, and especially leaving the inshore dependent fishermen without anything to catch, and thus really, you know, undermining their uh, living and livelihoods, not just them, but also the small businesses that depend on them, like the ice. Uh, providers and the bait, you know, shops and the, the, the gear members and such. So those are the problems that we started to see. So over the past few years, we've been bringing those problems together with fishermen who are experiencing them directly to our decision-making body. In this case, it's New England Fisheries Management Council. So we've been telling them that these are problems and, and it's their obligation to fix it. And so you know, despite this uh, catch share designed to consolidate, we were suggesting that there be safeguards included to protect family, community-based fishermen. Um, so that was what we, we came, so back to the this April council meeting, um, that was really what we were coming with. We, we said, no, this is, this is the problem. This is a public resource. We need safeguards. We need to ensure that independent people and, and stewardship-minded fishermen have a place in this fishery. And, uh, and we, you know, we were there with other fishermen, not just from Maine, but from Massachusetts and Rhode Island and New Hampshire. And we had uh, students who are working at their universities to transform how they're buying their seafood 
Uh, we had hospital representatives that are starting to shift how hospitals are buying locally caught seafood. So there was a lot of support. Um, it was clear that the, uh, the chairman of the council uh, didn't want to hear our testimony. They didn't want to hear the problems that we were talking about. And so there was an attempt to squeeze the agenda to ensure that we wouldn't have space to talk. So about midway through the meeting, I, I approached, you know, together with the group, I approached the chairman and just basically said, you know, look, we're, we're all here. Uh, we want to be able to testify and have our say as part of this public process. We've had a lot of fishermen and others, you know, drive from five and six, you know, hours away to be here just to have their two minutes of speaking. So please just, uh, you know, let us have our space on the agenda to say what we want to say. And, uh, and so his reaction, he had a very strong reaction. He initially had said no, and, and publicly in front of many other people had called me uh, a name that I, I can't say over the radio. But just to say, it was, it was clearly unprofessional. He was very threatened. Um, and the chairman is actually um, Terry Stockwell, who's uh, part of the main department of uh, Division of Marine Fisheries. And... Uh, so, you know, so that's, that's what happened, and I think it's just a symptom of a highly uh, flawed public process that is charged with managing our fisheries. And so we we got to do it much better. Okay. It sounds like it was a – I think you're downplaying the excitement that was there, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, – it sounds like things are coming to a, to a head as it were um, – the uh, the people who are on the National Marine Fisheries Council, uh, how are they appointed? Um, so what we're talking about is, is the New England Fisheries Management Council. There's about 16 members. Five of those members are appointed on the state level. Um, they're, they're representatives of the Division of Marine Fisheries for any given state that includes Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. Is the uh, so they have an automatic position? Is the chairman uh, a LePage appointee? Yes, hmm. yes, and that's Terry Stockwell. Right. He he is the current chairman, um, and so the rest of the eleven voting members um, are essentially nominated by the state governor. Um, and the nominations ultimately go to the Secretary of the Department of Commerce, which is all the way up the chain. Underneath the, the Department of Commerce is NOAA. Um, underneath NOAA is the National Marine Fisheries Service. And so ultimately the, uh, the oversight happens through the Department of Commerce and then the president. So that's how they're appointed. Um, it's, it's an incredibly political process. And in many ways, uh, the voting members of this council, the, the initial intent was to have it be a diverse representation of, of folks who have a stake in the fisheries and who represent the best interests of the public. And, uh, and we've come, come a very far, far cry from, from reaching that intent. Uh, right now, there's a very you know, narrow interest um, that, that on the, the council that do not reflect the broader interests of the public or the fishing community. So has there been a, a meeting since then? Uh, well, 
Yep, there was um, there was a meeting in June. There'll be another meeting coming up at the end of September, and uh, and just to add another bit of context. So when I said earlier that the catch share management program began in 2010, that was passed by the council through an amendment. The promise was, knowing that consolidation would would take place, that the council would do a, a follow-up amendment to create safeguards, the kind of safeguards that I was talking about earlier, safeguards to protect independent fishermen, safeguards to ensure that fisheries access is not forded into the hands of just one or two players, uh, safeguards to ensure that the fishing pressure wouldn't eliminate uh, inshore fish stocks. So those are the safeguards. Uh, this amendment that started after catch shares began was called Amendment 18. And the promise was it would, you know, it would, it would prevent excessive consolidation and it would ensure a more diverse fishing fleet in terms of boat size, gear type, and geographic location. So that was the deal. So right now we're kind of winding to the very tail end of this amendment process. And essentially what we went to the council with in April was that, you know, as this amendment is winding down, the promise is that we're going to have these safeguards in place and looking at the amendment right now and what's on the table, there is no legitimate safeguard there. There's nothing there to ensure that independent community-based fishermen will have access. There's nothing there to ensure that the increased fishing pressure caused by the transition to catch shares, there's nothing to ensure that will slow down or or scale down. So, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a failure. And the very final vote is scheduled to take place at the end of September. Um, the meeting will take place in Plymouth, Massachusetts over a three-day period, September 29th, 30th, and then October 1st. So that's going to be the final, final vote. And so, you know, it looks like based on what's on the table that this amendment will be a complete failure, the catch share program will be a complete failure, and ultimately the ability for this council, this, this uh, you know, public body, this body working in, in the interest of the public is, um, is also a failure. Well, <laughs> Not very good news. No, I'm going to say you're you're being pretty pessimistic there. Uh, so I guess we'll have to sort of hold our breath until uh, till this next meeting on it. But it doesn't doesn't look good. I uh, th- I think we'll be talking with you again in the future there, Brett. But uh, yours, I guess your prognostication is rather gloomy. Then, well, for this, you know, this is this is um just this one, I think battle in the larger, you know, fight to protect our fisheries access and our working waterfronts and ensure for Maine, for example, that, you know, communities and younger generations have access for the future. So, you know, what, what we need to have happen is more of this kind of dialogue. And we need to help the, the greater public understand what's happening to this public resource and this transition toward the private property model. So we need more eyes and ears on it. We need more transparency, and, and this is a great way to do it. So I'd encourage folks to, uh, you know, stay in touch with this work. They could visit our website at namanet.org. You know, visit our Facebook. We're going to try and get as many opportunities for the public to get engaged in this as possible. Could you say that website again? Spell it out, please. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, namanet.org. N-A-M-A-N-E-T. 
Okay. It's uh, been helpful, and uh, best of luck to you, Brent. I appreciate All right. I appreciate the work you're again. doing. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. Goodbye. So uh, things are a little bit tenuous on the, on the fish table, but we'll, I guess we'll have to see how things go. But So back to Richard. Um, you had what I call a, 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 a duh idea, the idea that I said to myself, duh, why didn't people think of this before? Your idea of making a wooden hull with a fiberglass top just seems like a, a, a natural to me. It does It does to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So people who have wooden boats know that fresh water is probably the worst thing for a wooden boat, and uh, people who have fiberglass boats know that fiberglass keeps out water pretty well as long as the few holes they have through them are well sealed but so uh why don't you elaborate on on that for how how did you you know what what was the moment when you said to yourself geez you know we ought to do this well years ago i i was working on a lot of fishermen's wooden boats and i see the problem with them was that the fishermen didn't like to maintain the tops of the boats and they were always having me come in and, and do repairs on them and and uh, because they weren't maintained because fresh water got in and rotted them out and and the hulls there weren't a big problem in in the hulls mostly it was in the tops of the boats mm-hmm. and so i i thought well geez why not take in and have a wooden boat hull and, and have a molded or custom-made panel top, which would keep the fresh water out and, and make it so it's fairly maintenance-free. It, it just seemed like the best thing. And there's some there's a, a, a boat builder named Raymond Bunker used to say yep. that uh, he, they've got it all backwards. They're, they're, they're taking wood and putting it in the wrong place. <laughs> they're putting it on top when they should be putting it on the bottom, putting the fiberglass on top and... And I quite well agree with that. Um, the The wooden boat is what gives you the comfortable ride. Um, yes, but, we've but, heard that a lot on it, this show, how much it, more nicely they go through the water. Yeah, they go through the water much nicer. Um, and and the wooden boat with a wooden top, the, the, they just didn't like to have to do maintenance. And so the guys got their fiberglass boats and sold their wooden boat off and and they got in their fiberglass boat and immediately wanted their wooden boat back, but they didn't want the maintenance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I thought, well, geez, why not have a wooden hull and, and have a fiberglass top? And I talked to my father about it, and he wouldn't have anything to do with it. He, he, didn't, <laughs> he didn't want it. Did he threaten you with a disinheritance? Dis- no, he didn't threaten me, but he, 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 didn't, he didn't think that was the way to go. I'm surprised. Yeah, I, 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 knowing Ralph, I, I would... It expect was, him to it wasn't that he didn't see the the benefit of it yeah he, it was that he didn't want he, he, I, I at that time I, I didn't want to do the fiberglass stuff myself yeah. and i thought well we'll just build wooden hulls and then send them off to fiberglass shops and have them build wooden uh, fiberglass tops on them and he the the idea of that he didn't like was that he would lose the control uh-huh. of the look of the boat mm-hmm. and he wanted to look just so and he thought that there was no way he could control the look as he wanted to yeah. in that way. 
So that idea just kind of just fell off the uh-huh. table. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure you're aware that you can make a, a wooden a plug for for a fiberglass mold, and and you have control of the look of of the plug. Yeah, but it, it, with me, I, I'm not so concerned with the look. I mean, I I do like to have things look like as I do, but I'm not I'm not as pure that way as mm-hmm. my father was. I, I'll. I, I think that there's some good-looking fiberglass tops out there, or fairly good-looking tops that could be made to fit a wooden boat hull. Mm-hmm. And and there also is a possibility of making a custom panel top that that gives you a lot more flexibility in in where the the bulkhead goes, and you know, and and, and the height of it, and and all these factors. It, it would be a little more money than a molded top, but yeah. but uh, it would be it would enable the the fisherman to have exactly what he wants. Right. Yeah. yeah, you could also make lobster yachts the same way too. It most certainly could. Yeah, yeah. I'd just have a a bigger house and a smaller aft deck, but sure, the same thing. I could see uh, eventually having two two deck molds out there, and uh, whatever your next order was, you'd have a, a contractor make a a fish top or, or a lobster top tend to or, fit on the wood hull, and you'd have the best of both worlds—a really good ride and a and a fairly waterproof top. Of course, the you know the the fiberglass is going to have windows and uh, chain plates and hawsers and you know few holes in it here and there that that you got to be careful about. But but you can seal all that up, yeah, and, and keep the water out. From the, the most of the deck leaks you saw on wooden boats are probably at the bottom of the house where it met the deck and. Uh, bottom of the windows and that sort of thing most of the, most of the problem was in in the where the cabin size and combings come together there and it, the water would get down in that seam mm-hmm. and start rotting things out there yeah yeah that nasty water and and, and, and the bits up forward when it was a wooden bit up forward that you yeah. that went through the deck and, and the water would get in there and rot it out yeah yeah that water, yes. Yeah. You can't park your boat inside. It would be nice. <laughs> yeah. We haven't, uh, we've been neglecting your, your good wife here, Lorraine. You've been very quiet, and I'm sure you're, uh, you don't just sit around and, and listen to Richard at work, too. You, you must have responsibilities. What do you do at Richard Stanley Boat Building? Well, I do the sandpapering and the painting and the office stuff and all that. But in terms of working on the boats, I, I mostly sandpaper. And, you know, the maintenance on the top of the boat is what takes the fun out of all of it. I mean, mm-hmm. you can sand and paint a topside pretty much in a day without a lot of sweat and effort and agony. But the top, if you want to do it right, it can take three weeks. Right, yeah, because as you're sanding along, you discover little spots that need some bedding or something and you know, little backtracking kind of things you have to do. So, yes, it, it's definitely a, a skill that... Uh, you just don't start out being a good painter. How did you learn your skills? I needed a job, and they needed somebody who was willing to show up and sandpaper every day. So I started that way. I'd done a little bit of work on boats before that, but not much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just kept after it. I, it was. Did Ralph hire you or Richard? I don't know who hired me, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I, I just showed up one day, and they put me to work. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I basically hired her, but but it was under my father's 
Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, my father yeah. still owned the business. Well, you worked together. Working, yeah. and I was a partner with him. Yeah. yeah. So now um, you have other employees. I do. Yeah. And, and I've had numerous other employees over the years, mm -hmm. but I have one one other employee at the time. Do you have any uh, any people who are interested in your uh, fiberglass wooden boats? There are some interests. How, how do you describe it? I mean, fiberglass wooden boat is in my way, but it, well, what I what I, I describe is is the best of both worlds. Yeah, oh, true. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. You, you know the you got the comfort of the wooden boat hull, and you got the maintenance free of the glass top. Um, you, you, you got it all right there. The, yeah. the, there's a lot of fishermen that that I worked on their wooden boats, and they got their fiberglass boats, and they they wished that they had a, a fiberglass top on their wooden boat, and and uh, it just never come to be in my shop that way because of, of my father's not wanting to do that. Mm -hmm. But but I'm I'm hoping that somebody will come in and, and have. Or, or some people, many, would come in and have, <laughs> yeah. Why have not? this idea. Because yeah. what I see is the fiberglass boats are, are hurting their, their bodies. They're, they're ending up having to go have new knees and new hips. Oh, and, the, pe and, the driver's bodies, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's true. The, and, and with a wooden boat, I, the, there's, a, there's a guy that, that owns a 38-foot boat that my father built back in 1975 i actually helped work on that boat and uh, i went down to do some work on it this spring it's down in situate massachusetts and we uh he, he told me a story about him being out and in, in the as the day went on it started blowing up and and he was hauling traps like no problem and, and all the other guys with the glass boats had headed back went in because they were getting thrashed getting beat up yeah so that that tells me right there that a wooden hull is a way easier boat to work out of. Oh yeah. And, and we have a, a phone call. Let's go to Danielle from Deer Isle. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome I've, to welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you. I have a question. I've been uh, fiberglass sailboats my whole life, and I was intrigued by what you said about a wooden boat, a wooden uh, how it moves through the water. Could you describe that some more? And I'm not trying to debate. I just I've. It's so rare I've been on a wooden boat. I'd like to hear how you describe it. It's easy. The difference. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Well, uh, when when you take a wooden boat, the weight of the wood is down deep in the boat. And, and a, with the fiberglass boat, the, the fiberglass is heavy all the way up. It's all so that as you go up, the weight is distributed up higher, the weight. Is and in a wooden boat, the weight is down in the bottom, so that that right there gives you the comfort because that's where you need the weight to be down in the bottom, and it makes it so that the a wooden boat rolls, it rolls easy, and and in a fiberglass boat rolls, it snaps and, and gives you a jerking motion. Um, I know that I build these wooden skiffs, and and I'd like to find someone that can tell me why this is. The, and Jarvis Newman built these fiberglass skiffs. They were an Arthur Sperwin model. And I build the wooden ones. And you take a wooden one and row it, and you stop rowing, and it just keeps on going. And you take the fiberglass one and you stop rowing it, it pretty much stops dead in the water the minute you stop rowing. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know why that is. I wish someone could tell me. 
<laughs> we'll have to do an experiment and but, make the exact same shape fiberglass one, and you can make an exact same shape wood one, and we'll we'll come up with an answer to that one. But Daniel, okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. That's, yeah, well, that's simple, and I get it. Well, I'll, I'll throw in one more thing too. Imagine you're out in uh, as a. Richard was just talking about it out in some rough days and some, you get into some fairly big waves. A wooden boat will kind of chop through a wave, whereas a fiberglass boat will tend to what they call hobby horse, kind of ride up and down with the waves more often. So you're you're uh, going up and down quite a bit more than you would with a comparable wooden boat. It seems like I need to get on a wooden boat and go out to sea and see what that's like. Well, give Richard a call. <laughs> Thank you much. Thank you, Daniel. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight is the number in the boat talk. If you'd like to discuss anything naval, we'll we'll contemplate it for you. So you haven't uh, haven't built any of this actual boat yet, but no, not yet. Yeah, no. that would be the, uh, a good one to take down to the main boats, homes, and harbors show. Were you down there this last? I, I wasn't this well, year. Can, no. Yeah, Peter Cass. You probably know Peter Cass. I know Peter, yeah. Yes. Yep. Builds um, a very nice boat. Oh, yeah, yeah. He builds very nice wooden boats, yeah. yes. And there was a whole gathering of Cass boats there. It was very, very impressive to see. Yeah. And I think if you talk with any of the owners there, they would say the same thing that Richard's saying, that they're just much more comfortable. Yeah. 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 The... Uh, Cast boat though is is all wood and and you got yeah. you still got your maintenance issues. There. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah he's but, he's quite traditional. Yes, he is. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about uh, storage for your 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 boats. Uh, if you know if theoretically you have a, some wood kind of fiberglass combination boats made and you're going to be putting them you still want to put them into a uh, a dirt floor yeah with a wooden hull it's a store boat and it, you need to have a dirt floor yeah. to keep the moisture into the boat a concrete draws the moisture out of wood mm-hmm. and and it'll dry it right out and so that's not so good and where where with a fiberglass boat if you put it in a dirt floor building it sweats and, and if there's any wood in it, it'll rot it out. Um, huh. So you have to heat, heat, keep it in heated storage. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't realized that, but you're, you're quite right. Yeah, the bottoms, all the bulkheads are sitting against the fiberglass. would probably be soaking up all that condensation all winter. And, so, or, well, whenever it was above freezing. But, yeah. <laughs> but So, you know, with, with the fiberglass boat being in a heated building, that's... Not very environmentally friendly. <laughs> That's true too. Yeah, it's ungreen, isn't it? It's ungreen. Yeah. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We got about five minutes left. If you want to quickly squeeze in a question to uh, to Boat Talk or to Richard or to Lorraine too, Lorraine will give you the the scoop on sandpaper. You let's go to sandpaper though. I I know. A lot of people nowadays are using um, triamite, the, the the white sandpaper. Do you have any preferences for sandpaper? Or? I like the 3M gold sheets. Gold sheets, yeah. They they have sticky rolls now, which a lot of people like to put on the soft pads. Yeah. And um, I do use those a little bit, but I find that the old school way of cutting it up and folding little squares works very well for me. Hmm. 
And I hate trimite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, why do you hate trimite? When I've used it, it was like... I, I, Loses its grit? Yeah, it was yeah. like somebody took a piece of paper and sprayed some sticky stuff on it and threw some sand on it, yeah. and then it all falls off when you try to use it. Yeah, I thought so, too. Yeah. When when, when I was younger, we, we on the maintenance boats, we always just sanded most of them with, with 100 grit. Production paper mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the brown stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and then and, and on the finer yachts, we we would use the two twenty trimite paper, mm-hmm. and uh, that was that was, it just wears wears out so quick. You just yeah. go right through it really quick. But today we we use uh, the gold paper, and, and that works very well. And and we use these Merker sanding machines with vacuums, and, and mm. that that's really the way to to go in, in the maintenance. Well, sanding. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the week, it saves a lot of sweeping up time on the shop floor, too. That And, and it, it saves a lot of time in, in, in doing the sanding. Oh, true. It's yeah. just a very efficient, very, huh. very nice job. Random orbit. Orbit, yeah, random orbit yeah. yeah. They act more like an air tool than than your usual random orbit electric They're not real heavy? Though. They're not, not real heavy. heavy. Yeah. Hmm. They're a vast improvement over the... Yeah, but Bosch yeah. Whatever. After seven hours, you're really looking at the clock a lot. A difference. <laughs> yeah. So, Lorraine, um, you had no boat experience before you worked for uh, Stanley Boat. I'd sand and paint in some bottoms. Oh yeah, yeah. Your people always looking for volunteers for that, aren't you? Yeah, they'll pay just about anybody to do that. Yeah. Well. You started at the bottom and worked up, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. I decided to learn something complimentary. I didn't really think I needed a household with two boat builders in it. Oh, yeah. There are. When we met, though, I was I was building and still building a 30-foot friendship sloop. and, and Still building? Yeah. It's a home project. It's huh? only been, what, 16 years now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But Lorraine and I met. At, at her father's, I was doing some work on it on his one of his boats, and and he came over when I got done and, and introduced her to me, and and uh, I I just thought she was a pretty girl and, and and nice, and and I invited him to come over and check out my boat that I was building, and was I was just getting the keel put together and cutting the rabbit and stuff, and Lorraine came over with and and, and I. Started showing her what to do and how to do, and she st- picked up the tools and started doing it right. with me and hanging out with me, and that's how we kind of got together. It's yeah. a match, huh? <laughs> yeah. I can hold the other end of the board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming up uh, close to the end of W uh, Boat Talk here on WERU. I'd like to give thanks to Lorraine and Stanley, uh, Lorraine and Richard Stanley. Of Stan, Stanley Boat Building is it? It's called, it's called Stan, Richard Stanley Custom Boats, Custom Bass Boats. Harbor. Yeah, and yeah. you have a website? Yes, we do. Yeah, RichardStanleyCustomBoats.com. dot com. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, what I guess. And we're on Facebook too. And you're on Facebook too. Yeah, and, and Lorraine takes beautiful pictures of, of the jobs and processes and uh-huh. things that we're doing. Yeah, that's yeah. a skill right there too. Yeah, very much. <laughs> So, um, maybe you should uh, send some uh, 
some of your pictures over to the Boat Talk Facebook page. We have a Facebook page on Boat Talk, too. So <laughs> for you folks out there who would like to uh, to see what we're talking about, just go to uh, our Facebook TV page. We do have a, a website, too, but that's um, been a little stagnant lately, but I'll see if I can get that going also, boattalk.org. I'm going to uh, talk a little quick quick bit about the uh, the Toolbox of the Year Award, that boat that I am fascinated by that only rich people will ever even consider buying. But it's also, I didn't mention that it was also, it's a dormitory too, so that all your servants, or not all, but all the ones that aren't needed at the time can be off the boat and somewhere else, and you have uh, more room for guest storage on your yacht or yachts, depending on how many you have. But this service vessel will go around and uh, meet you at whichever yacht you happen to be on at the time. And uh, I think uh, we'll uh, send this uh, recording over to Amelson, see if they maybe might give us a, a little test model tryout just to, just to give it a boat talk, uh, boat review here. We'll bring it over and have Richard uh, see how it goes through the water. Okay. I imagine this one's probably a aluminum though, or some sort of metal. It probably goes through better than fiberglass. But it cruises at twenty knots. Twenty knots. Twenty knots. Yeah, it's pretty a uh, pretty fast toolbox. So here we are, about about the end, I believe, at the uh, extra large. We got oh two minutes left. So the engineer says so we. Answer a call, a quick call at one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, but probably won't be able to give you a very thorough answer. Richard, thank you for for coming in here, and uh, I, business is good for you. You business is good right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and uh, your website is richardstanleycustomboats.com. dot com. That's a long one, but I, pretty easy to spell out. I think we can figure that out. Uh, any last comments or uh, anything that you'd like to throw in that I haven't thought about? I I don't I don't have anything I don't think. No, nope. had a good time and it was it was enjoyable. Gonna, yeah, yeah, we're going to yeah. go uh, see if we can find the, uh, a yacht service vessel to have lunch on right now. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, thanks to uh, all you folks, people who uh, in our recent fundraiser helped uh, put W E R U over our goal of uh, $16,000. And uh, if you didn't contribute then, you can do that online at weru.org. So, sounds break for the Extra Large, uh, for the Boat Talk Show. Thanks for supporting Community Radio. Stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger coming up next with On the Wing. <laughs> 